This is Conversations with the President, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. Hi, I'm Stephen Rothstein, President of the Canadian Bar Association. Welcome to my final episode of my podcast series, Conversations with the President. My focus during my term as CBA president has been on raising awareness and removing taboos surrounding mental health and wellness and highlighting the value of volunteerism, not only to society at large, but also for oneself. If there is a recurring theme, it has been lawyers' resilience in the face of seemingly insurmountable obstacles and where to find the inspiration to keep going. I can think of no better helping hand to reach out to for guidance in the current legal profession in Canada than my guest today. It is a great honor both for myself and for the CBA to welcome you to the podcast, Supreme Court Justice Mahmoud Jamal. Thank you, Stephen. You were appointed almost a year ago today or in this month, I think. It's one year, 21 days, Stephen. So. Not that you're counting. Not that you're counting. Is there a, count, is there a countdown? Well, uh, no, it's easy because it was July 1st and it's the 21st today that we're recording this. So a year and 21 days. I started my term as CBA president. One of the first things I did was being part of your welcome ceremony, which is a career highlight of mine. And one of the last things I'm doing is, is taping this podcast. So it's bookended my term as CBA president. So there's a lot of things to speak to you about. So I'm just wondering, you are a role model to many young lawyers and including myself, but it's just not a young lawyer anymore. But I'm wondering, who are your role models? Where do you find your inspiration? Well, Stephen, first of all, it's a great pleasure to be here and to be participating in your podcast. I've been very fortunate. I mean, my parents were obviously my first role models in terms of teaching me the value of hard work and the importance of education. So that was obviously foundational for me. But I was very fortunate, I think, throughout my pre-university schooling and then my university education to have had great teachers. They were enormously influential and gave a lot of guidance and a lot of mentorship throughout the years. I can think of many professors in law school, but particularly the late Patrick Glenn, for whom I was a research assistant, was a great mentor, a great uh, comparative lawyer. And then I think the judges I clerked for, Justice Rothman at the Quebec Court of Appeal and Justice Gontier at the Supreme Court, they were very different people, but both had profound respect for the rule of law, for judging, for Canada. So I think they were both, in their own ways, very, very important as mentors in terms of setting the direction for the sort of lawyer I wanted to be. And then when I was a lawyer, I mean, I was just enormously fortunate. I had great people at various different points in my career who provided guidance. The person I worked with most in the early part of my career was Edgar Sexton, the late Edgar Sexton, who went on to become a judge, as you know, at the Federal Court of Appeal. And he was enormously important in the early years. And then uh, even when he became a Federal Court of Appeal judge, uh, continued to provide friendly guidance and, and mentorship. Um, and then there was just a series of people I was in, exposed to as a young lawyer. The Honorable Edward Saunders retired from the Superior Court and joined the firm I was at. And he introduced me to others, including Peter Corey, who also joined the firm. And the two of them were just a couple of doors down from me. So they were people who were obviously had a wealth of experience and perspective to give. And we were just very generous with their advice and their experience. And then... Later on, there were people like uh, Marshall Rothstein, who, when he retired from the Supreme Court, I worked with, and Ian Binney, I worked with on many occasions. 
And then there were people who I didn't necessarily work with, but I looked to for inspiration and still look to for inspiration. People like Beverly McLaughlin and Rosalie Bella. And then when I was at the Ontario Court of Appeal, there were just so many people that were great colleagues and great mentors. I can't name all of them, but I mean, Chief Justice Strathy, Justice Sharp, Justice McPherson, Justice Doherty, Justice Watt, Justice Fellman. The list goes on and on. They were just extraordinary people to learn from. So I've just been very, very fortunate at every stage in my career to have had great mentors, and they've really taught me a lot. Quite the list of, of individuals who you've uh, engaged with during your professional practice. And it does obviously talk about the importance of, of role models and, and mentorship. Um, as you may have uh, heard me talk about, uh, one of my priorities during my presidential year is talking about the value of volunteerism. And it's something you've obviously shown throughout your career. So I want to talk to you about your time as pro bono counsel with the CBA and as well as your work with the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, as well as the Federation of Law Society, where you did some pro bono work. What uh, what motivated you to take on those various responsibilities? Well, I started doing pro bono work in law school, uh, like many. I uh, volunteered in legal clinics and represented students before university and internal administrative bodies. And then when I became a young lawyer, started doing pro bono work, whether it was representing individuals who needed representation before the courts or administrative tribunals or giving legal opinions. And a lot of that work was really under the radar. It wasn't impact litigation. It was helping a particular individual or organization or giving a legal opinion or doing research. But after a certain number of years in practice, I thought there might be an opportunity to make more of an impact in terms of participating in test cases. So I think probably after about seven or eight years of practice and having done a lot of this uh, sort of volunteer work that was under the radar, I started doing work for organizations like the CBA and the CCLA. And people wonder, well, how do you get to work for the CBA or the CCLA? Uh, well, in my case, I just called up. I uh, said there was a case I was interested in representing the CBA in, and I called Tamara Thompson at the CBA, who I'm, I'm sure you know very well. And she was enormously helpful, enormously receptive. And I was still a relatively young lawyer and thinking, well, how can I possibly get the opportunity to represent the CBA? Well, if you show initiative and you do a well-prepared, well-thought-out proposal, you might get the opportunity. So I did get an opportunity to represent the CBA on a case dealing with solicitor client privilege and then represented the CBA in a few other cases in, you know, in the next 15 or so years. And the same thing with the CCLA. I simply called up Alan Borovoy, who the late Alan Borovoy, who was the general counsel at the CCLA at the time, and the rest is history. I think you have to show initiative. Nobody's going to give you, you know, an opportunity. You sort of have to take initiative. For me, it was very fortunate that uh, I was given opportunities to present arguments on cases that I cared about. What were some of the biggest challenges you faced in those cases? And looking back, I mean, if it's easy to say what was a success story, you've had many in your career, but is there one that you think of, you just feel proud of, you're able to get a certain a result or achieve a certain part of a decision? Well, I think in terms of challenges, I think every young lawyer feels a certain degree of imposter syndrome when they take on a new role and you know, appearing before the highest court in the land. I was reading recently Baroness Hale's recent memoir, Spider Woman, where she starts the book by talking about her imposter syndrome. And here we are, the 
president of the UK Supreme Court, the highest judge in the land. And she starts her book by talking about imposter syndrome that she experienced at every stage of her career. So I think there's inevitably, in terms of challenges, I think many feel a certain degree of being out of their depth early on. You know, when you walk up to the podium in the Supreme Court of Canada as a lawyer and you see nine people peering down at you, you feel a certain degree of imposter syndrome, but then hopefully your preparation and hard work overcomes that pretty quickly. And usually once the flow of arguments starts, uh, that's overcome. So I think that's the biggest challenge is just feeling out of place and wondering, am I really ready for this? Am I really up for this? But again, I've learned and Baroness Hale in her memoir, which I highly recommend to anybody who's listening, talks about the role of hard work and preparation, about how that's the only way to overcome a sense of lack of belonging or not being prepared. So that was the way to overcome that. And uh, success stories, well, I think sometimes you, it's great when you win a case, it's great when you get cited in a judgment of the Supreme Court, but I think you learn the most when you lose. I think learning why your argument wasn't picked up, why you didn't manage to attract the judicial mind to your perspective is really where you learn. It's when you when you don't succeed. I've been fortunate. I've had lots of losses and <laughs> lots of things to, to learn from. Of course, it's always better for your clients if you win. Uh, yeah, of course, you always want to win. But sometimes the facts are such that no matter what you do with the case, you're not going to be able to turn a court. But uh, And sometimes the legal proposition you're advancing is too much of a stretch. But, you know, advocacy does make a difference. It's not to say that you can't take a tough case and, and make it digestible for a judge. But sometimes that's not possible. I'm wondering where you see the need for volunteers with legal training going in the future. Is it more pro bono work? Are there other areas that you see uh, lawyers using their legal skills in, in helping society? Well, I think... You know, whether an individual lawyer decides to do pro bono work is very much a personal decision, but I certainly found it enormously valuable. It gave me perspective on the work that I was doing in a, in a large firm. It got me out of the office. It connected me with the community. It connected me with people whose uh, lives were very different than the corporate clients I was representing in my regular practice. So I think it's enormously valuable in giving you perspective, in giving you a sense of gratitude for the great advantages that we have in the legal profession, for reminding you that the law is a service business. Of course, you get that sense in your regular work. I, I certainly got that sense, but it, it's a quantum difference in terms of the gratitude that somebody who's not being paid and when they tell you how grateful they are, it, it just has a, a deeper significance and a deeper resonance and a deeper importance to you. So I think being of service to other people is enormously important. It has obviously societal benefits, but it also has benefits for the individual who's providing the service. So I think all those things are valuable and approaching pro bono work with a, you know, with a spirit of humility, with a spirit of gratitude is, uh, is valuable. There are so many areas where you can provide pro bono assistance. So I think it's just a question of finding what your passion is and then exploring it. I want to talk to you about another one of the priorities I have as CBA president this year, and it's talking about mental health and wellness. It's a huge issue within the legal profession. It's truthfully a huge issue within Canadian society as a whole. 
Um, and there was a lot of taboos about around mental health that continue to this day. The pandemic has had a silver lining. Perhaps it's that it's helped raise awareness of this issue. So I'm just wondering your thoughts on how we can kind of remove some of the taboos surrounding mental health in the legal profession. Well, I think we can look to the example of former Justice Clément Gascon and uh, Chief Justice Stravi when leaders of the profession speak openly about their own struggles and about their family's struggles. I think it normalizes the fact that there is uh, pervasive mental illness, not only in the legal profession, but in, in society. Mental health is something that we should all be concerned about, whether or not we suffer from mental illness. And so I think people in in senior positions in the legal profession talking about it openly without stigma with understanding with compassion and seeking to educate it's enormously important i'm sure you saw the article in the newspaper last week yeah. things like that are enormously important and the speeches that chief justice strathy has given have been powerful and similarly with former justice gascon's openness about his own experiences i think it's enormously important and normalizing of the fact that it is normal to struggle with mental health issues. It doesn't mean you can't be an active, high-performing member of the legal profession or of the judiciary. So I think that's that's been watershed in our profession anyway. People of that caliber speaking about these issues are uh, important. Yeah, just for the benefit of our listeners, the article that you're referring to was a Globe and Mail article which interviewed Justice Strathy and uh, former OBA president Orlando De Silva, among others, talking about mental health and wellness within the legal profession. And I think the headline or one of the comments that resonated with people was obviously Justice Strathy talking about lawyers and we need to get past the gladiator mentality. A visual I think we all can get a sense of what that looks like. So yeah, I, I'm hoping that that article, as well as obviously our conversation today, and the words that Justice um, Gascon has uh, has said on his his challenges with mental health do resonate and people realize that they're, they're not alone and uh, they shouldn't be ashamed and they should seek, seek the help uh, that they need. You know, mental health is not just mental health, it's just about wellness and about gaining perspective. And I'm wondering, you, you obviously throughout your career have had difficult cases uh, some you won, and as you mentioned, some you learned from, but you lost. Um, how how did you kind of regain focus from whatever happened and and uh, prepare for the next challenge? I, I think everybody has their techniques to try and move on from a loss to the next case. It helps to be busy when you're in practice because then you have another client's uh, problem or another client's case to address. So I think trying to put it in perspective and moving on to the next challenge. At the end of the day, though, you know, the more time you spend on a case and the more you invest of yourself in the case, I think the reality is the longer it's going to take to overcome a loss. That was certainly my experience. If I, I had cases where I spent over a decade litigating an issue and then losing. And if you think you're going to get over a loss like that in a week or a few weeks, well, that wasn't my experience. It takes months, if not more to overcome that. But I think, you know, time, perspective, exercise, frankly, helps with your sense of well-being, being outdoors, a loving family, time with family and friends, all those things, I think, help put things into a, a longer time frame and give you perspective. But at the end of the day, you have to move on. And 
it isn't a personal failing. If you put your best into the case, if you put your best into everything you do, that's all you can really ask. And that's all your clients can ask of you. Um, just along this topic, and you talked earlier in, in our conversation about imposter syndrome, but I'm wondering how you, uh, you mentioned hard work and preparation, and maybe that's the answer, but you know, how, how have you dealt with any self-doubts that you've had throughout your career, if you've had any? Um, how do you rise above it? Well, the most important thing is is endurance. I mean, you've got to still be standing like the lines from the Elton John song. You've got to still be standing at the end of the day. So you've got to just endure. I mean, I, I tell law students that I thought about dropping out of law school in my first year because I thought it was too hard. I didn't know if I had the wherewithal to, you know, to do the 100% final exams at the end of the year. So, you know, lots of people feel that and it's normal to feel that. But at the end of the day, you've just got to keep going. But I think many challenges, at least in my, my experience, can be overcome. Those sorts of challenges anyway can be overcome just by working hard, just doing your best. At the end of the day, if you do your best and you put your most into the task uh, and into the role, then then you can't uh, you can't be too hard on yourself if you didn't measure up to your own standard. I mean, the article that you mentioned from the Globe and Mail talked about, uh, I think it was Chief Justice Strathy, or maybe it was Justice Gascon talking about the pernicious effect of perfectionism. Well, it's a great strength of lawyers to be perfectionists, but it's also a great weakness. And so finding that balance and finding how to wrestle with the demons of perfectionism is something that we're all challenged to deal with. So I think at the end of the day, you just do your best and just work hard. I mean, I think that's been my experience. And as I said, that's the advice of Baroness Hale as well. I think that's great advice. Uh, and I hadn't heard the story that you had almost dropped out of law school, which again, uh, thank goodness you didn't. Did you always know you wanted to be a lawyer? I guess at some points, maybe you weren't 100% sure, but did you know early on that this is a career path that you wanted to follow? I think when I was about 11 or 12, my one of my teachers, actually my Latin teacher in uh, the UK, told me that I should become a barrister. And I didn't know what a barrister was, but I liked the sound of the word. So I thought, well, that might be interesting. And I learned a little about the law and, uh, you know, would go to the old Bailey when I was in London and watch cases. And then when I was in undergrad at U of T, I'd go to the courts on University Avenue and occasionally sit on cases. But I never really thought about becoming a lawyer. I was doing an economics degree and thought I wanted to become an economist. And then at the end of my degree, I applied for some jobs as an economist before going to do graduate school, I thought in economics. And it was at the beginning of a recession in Canada. And so jobs were scarce and it forced me to reconsider. So I thought about, well, maybe I'll do a professional degree. And a lot of people were thinking about going to law school. And uh, the more I learned about the law, the more I thought, well, this might be something I could could do. And so I applied to law school. And But for a, a real challenge in my first year, when I had, as I said, some self-doubt as to whether this was the right thing for me, I really, really loved the law. So uh, I was very fortunate that you know I found something that I could really derive a lot of intellectual and personal satisfaction from. And at what point in your career did you think maybe you wanted to be a judge? Well, when I was clerking for Justice Rothman and Justice Gontier, I, you know, seeing a judge every day and exposing you to judicial life and their how they approach legal issues was certainly something I thought, well, that might be interesting 
one day if I could do it. But then I became a lawyer and, you know, as a young lawyer, you're just focused on the task at hand. You're focused on getting through your, or at least I was, getting through my first year and then getting through my uh, first experiences and then having a family and raising children. So the idea of becoming a judge is something very, very distant and very unattainable. But I think as I approached 50, I started thinking, well, what do I do? Do I, it was a bit of a fork in the road. Do I continue doing what I'm doing, which I really, really enjoy? Or do I try and start a career as a judge? So I think it was about after about 20 or so years of practice that I started thinking about what the next phase of my career might look like. I mean, obviously you had clerked, so you had a good sense of what it was to be to be a judge. But uh, did you? Uh, were there any great surprises? Well, it shouldn't have been a surprise, but I was struck by how hard judges work. I mean, it is a tough job. It shouldn't have surprised me, but it it, it did. And uh, I don't know. I think when you're a lawyer, even if you've seen judges work by being a law clerk, I think the actual demands of judging and of writing and of preparing and researching and so on are difficult to really grasp until you've done it. It was it was for me anyway. You know, in practice, you I had breaks in between uh, cases. I would finish a large case and then I would have a bit of a downtime for a little while. And then, you know, you do have do downtime as a judge, obviously, but it's not but there's always you don't have to go out and get new business, right? I mean, there's, there's the kid comes to you exactly, exactly. So, you know, drinking from a fire hydrant—that's what being a judge is like a lot of the time, and it is hard work. I, I, it's hard work for me anyway. Writing, preparing, thinking are all difficult tasks for me, and so I think the the idea of being a judge and then the reality of it are different things. You know, you are a role model to to young to young lawyers. So if you had advice for them and you've given various advice throughout this conversation we've had, but for those who want to be lawyers or for those who want to be lawyers who may want to be judges at one point, um, is there any is there any advice you would have for them uh, as they plan out their career? Well, first of all, I would just stick with it. it it's a difficult profession, especially in the early years. I think uh, getting your grounding in the profession takes time and you have to overcome some of the teething pains that every young lawyer experiences, you know, learning how to do a book of authorities or a, you know, a back sheet and all these little things that are, they don't, they don't teach you how to do in law school and learning how to deal with difficult counsel opposite. You've got to just keep moving and stick with it for the first while before you really have a sense of whether this is for you. But then I think doing some of the things that I've spoken about already, getting involved in the legal community, whether that's through the CBA or other public interest groups or communities within the legal profession uh, are very, very important and great sources of support. They get you out of the out of being behind your computer where you can sometimes get cabin fever. If all you do is bill hours and work for your paying clients, I think you get a very narrow view of the contribution that you can make as a lawyer. So I think the broader the experience that you have, the more you write, the more you speak, teach, uh, those opportunities come to you naturally uh, the longer you are in the profession and the more you, you seek them out, frankly. So I think having a well-rounded professional life and maintaining a personal life and trying to maintain an equilibrium, of course, will make you a happy person and a fulfilled lawyer. 
Oh, that's great advice and a great way to end this podcast. But I will leave you. The floor is yours. Is there any other anything else you would like to share with our listeners? Always give the judge the last word. <laughs> Well, I just want to thank you, Stephen, for this uh, opportunity and uh, thank you for speaking at my welcome ceremony. As you said, it's bookended your year as CBA president. It's also bookended my first year as a judge on the court. So thank you very much. Thank you again for coming and being on on my podcast and uh, obviously for the, the great work that you're doing on behalf of our country at the Supreme Court of Canada. So thanks for your time today. Uh, good luck in your deliberations in the future. Thank you very much. This is Conversations with the President, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues. And if you have any comments, feedback, and suggestions, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter and on Facebook. Subscribe to receive notifications for new episodes, and check out our coverage of legal affairs at nationalmagazine.ca.